today on the Word Preacher Podcast, how God speaks a famine for hearing the word of the Lord and saviors on Mount Zion. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Word Preacher Podcast. Our Come Follow Me curriculum for this coming week uh, will focus on Amos and Obadiah. So let's talk briefly about the historical context that we know about uh, these couple of books. Amos prophesied during the reign of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam II. This isn't Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first king of Israel. It's Jeroboam who was in the line of Jehu, the son of Nimshi. Um, still not a righteous king, uh, but um, it came many years later, many generations later. So that is important to understand. Even though Amos was a shepherd from a town called Tekoa, which was south of Jerusalem, he was still called to minister to the northern kingdom of Israel. And Amos explained that although he was not the prophet, neither a prophet's son, but a herdman and farmer, in Amos chapter 7 verse 14, God had still called him to prophesy, and he was obedient to the Lord. Obadiah's historical context is a little more difficult to pin down. His book is only one chapter, and he talks about punishment that will come to Edom. Now, there are several times throughout the history of Judah and Israel when Edom attacked and prevailed, and Judah and Israel had to be delivered. Some people believe that Obadiah prophesied during the reign of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Um, his issue was getting a bit close to Ahab and Jezebel. Already after Jehoshaphat, we were starting to go downhill. Um, more people believe that Obadiah prophesied during the Chaldean dominion, though, closer to the reign of Zedekiah after the northern kingdom was gone. Um, regardless of which it was, the themes of many of the minor prophets that we'll be studying uh, as the year closes they'll be similar to the themes of the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. I, uh, Israel had forgotten their covenants and their God, despite his abundant goodness toward them. Israel will be humbled, and the enemies of Israel will prevail for a time. And when Israel humbles themselves before God, they will find deliverance. God will ultimately remember the covenants that he has made with them. So as we start reading in the book of Amos, uh, in chapter 2, there's a couple of verses that kind of express this theme. Uh, starting in verse 10. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up of your sons for prophets, and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye give the Nazarites wine to drink, 
and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Okay, so in these verses, 10 through 12, we get a reference to the Nazarites. The vow of a Nazarite is probably made most famous in the story of Samson during the time of the judges in Israel. A Nazarite vow could be for a temporary duration, or in the case of Samson, it could be a lifelong commitment. During this vow, the Nazarite would embrace certain restrictions, which included not cutting their hair and avoiding wine. Israel, for the most part, was not looking to embrace more restrictions or traditions that might make it hard for them to fit in with their neighbors. Instead, they wanted a king to be like other nations. And they threw down the judges in favor of having someone sit on a throne. They were also very amiable to serving the gods of other lands. All of their neighbors had varying religions, and Israelites partook in their traditions uh, more than serving the God of Israel. And not just more than, but in place of, and in direct defiance of, the true and living God. Um, so... Uh, this is really fundamental there at the end of this verse 12, where it says, when prophets would come, and they would come commanding them to repent and return to the Lord, the people would respond to these prophets by saying, prophesy not. That may seem very familiar to our situation today. Now, the, even in the past 10 20, 30 years, the culture in the United States is vastly different from what it was. We're really closer to this prophesy not. It's the, uh, the difference, maybe not as extreme between the days of Zedekiah and the days of Joshua. But, uh, I mean, when I was growing up in Southern California, my friends went to a church on Sunday. All of my friends Many of my friends went to my ward. They were members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Others went to other churches. Um, by the time I was in high school, though, religious thinking uh, was just kind of a casual cultural thing. It was declining in favor of secularism. And today, even among members of the church, restrictions that come in the form of prophetic counsel and di divinely inspired standards, they're not popular. People on social media groups that are meant for church members can even be found complaining about having to wear temple garments or emphasizing prophetic fallibility when discussing standards for dress or behavior. They are essentially giving the Nazarite wine and commanding the prophets prophesy not. Jesus was not kidding when he talked about the division between his way and the way of the world, and the fact that the world hated him. We cannot serve God and mammon. If we continue in verse uh, in, in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 7 brings us to one of the most famous verses uh, in the book, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, 
but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The idea of prophecy is sometimes something that people struggle with. For example, during the Reformation, individuals found issues between what the Catholic Church was doing and what the scriptures taught, and it led to the creation of many Protestant churches who no longer looked to the Pope as authoritative. But they still needed some kind of authoritative way to discern between what was divine and what was profane, what came from God and what came from men. So they turned to the scriptures using a principle that they referred to as sola scriptura, by the scriptures alone. Of course, it wasn't by the scriptures alone. This was uh, there were apocryphal books in the scriptures they, they were happy to throw out. So there was some debate as to what was scripture. And they were still embracing the non-biblical creeds that came out about the 3rd century AD. The problem with the approach is more nuanced than what is scripture, though. That's not the crux of the issue. It's that this approach is not new at all. I mean, essentially, the Sadducees did the same thing, only their canonical Bible was the Torah, the first five books, the books of Moses. And because the first five books don't talk about things like resurrection in great detail, the Sadducees believed, well, it must not be real then. Throw it out, it's false doctrine. Now, there were some advantages. They avoided some of the introduction of incorrect traditions that plagued the sect of the Pharisees, but in so doing, they arbitrarily drew a line in time that said, that's the end of where God can speak by prophets. Before this line, it was good and divine, and after this line, it's blasphemy. It's disallowed. I recently interacted online with an individual on social media who had a similar belief, only he drew the line after the prophet Joseph Smith, claiming that the church and modern prophets were not truly prophesying because they were not claiming to have visions in which they saw God. In other words, the idea is that prophecy is only prophecy if... It A comes from comes in the form of a vision where you see God, and B predicts the future. This is the way a lot of people look at prophecy. You have to see God, and it predicts what will happen in the future. But I mean, God has never been limited in how he speaks to people. He's spoken to people on numerous subjects the past, the present, the future, and at numerous times, and in numerous ways, certainly including visions and dreams, but also more subtly, by still small voices, by other forms of revelation that come from God. Um, this is really important to understand. Uh, when our modern prophets speak in counsel to us, giving instructions that may apply to the present, or maybe expanding, giving insight of events that occurred in the past, 
as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost, this is still prophecy. Prophecy is not limited to foretelling, and it's not applicable to only one form. There are authorized sources that Jesus Christ uh, allowed to go forth and declare, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We also, as a matter, in our articles of faith, believe that a man is called of God by prophecy. This is important. It means our callings in the church, which are extended by counseling together and seeking the will of the Lord, are done using the spirit of prophecy. Even the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy because it helps a person to know the truth of things as they were, are, and are to come. In other words, the Lord will do nothing except he reveal his secret to his servants, the prophets. All right, a little bit later in the book of Amos, we get a couple of verses. Uh, this is chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. So when people fail to recognize prophecy as such, when they don't believe prophecy is prophecy, they contribute to this famine. In the world in which we live today, the people are desperate for divine help. However, few of them turn to his prophets and apostles. Even among faithful members of the church, how can we expect to receive more prophecy if we do not value the prophecy that God is giving us? That's not just hearing it, but trying to live it. All right. The book of Obadiah is only a single chapter that describes the deliverance from Edom. The symbolic theme of this deliverance is really important, actually. Um, Edom was the kingdom of the children of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. And if we recall, Esau and Jacob had a conflict about the birthright that they would receive from their father Isaac. Though Esau had been born first, he did not value his birthright or keep the standards that his parents had set. Consequently, as a result, the birthright went to Jacob. Jacob did not immediately prevail over Esau. In fact, he had to flee for his life, and it was only after many years of very hard work that he dared to return to the land of Canaan. The conflict between Jacob and Esau was representative of the conflict between the cares of the world at large and the covenants with Jesus Christ. The world has times in which they seem to dominate this uh, conflict. When the, covenant of when the covenant people must retreat and flee and hide in order to endure, but in the end... God honors the covenant. 
we look in verse 21, we see a very notable verse. It reads, And Savior shall come on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The idea of saviors on Mount Zion should invoke the idea of people associated with the covenants of God that help deliver those who cannot help themselves. In modern times, this is used to describe efforts made on behalf of those in the spirit world, no longer able to receive physical ordinances because they no longer have physical bodies. Now, these individuals may be eagerly waiting to join in with the covenant with God. They may have already accepted him and only need the binding power of covenant to be a part of his kingdom. The role that individuals who go to the temple and receive these ordinances on behalf of those who cannot receive them themselves is as saviors on Mount Zion condemning the power of the world of Esau by bringing the covenants of Jesus Christ to those who need them. The entire concept of vicarious action is the foundation of all priesthood rites and even the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. His power, his temples, and he himself stand as unshakable on, mount, on the mountain to overthrow the hold of the world and establish protective covenants with those who would join with him. In the end, we have a responsibility to be less worldly and more like saviors on Mount Zion. We can improve our capabilities by diligently seeking, following, and living counsel from God's prophets, rather than starving ourselves from prophecy by marginalizing the prophets and their revelations. The lessons that applied in ancient times still apply. God still calls prophets to reveal his truths. We appreciate all the support for the Word Preacher podcast. Next week, we will be looking at Jonah and Micah. Of course, there's a lot we did not cover in this week's reading. Please study that individually and with your family. And as always, fight on.